Here we go. Welcome to the Transform with Travel podcast, where we share stories of personal transformation and life lessons through our experiences of traveling and exploring the world. Travel is the ultimate accelerator for personal growth, and it can be the root catalyst for the pivots and plot twists we make in our lives. I'm your host, Kelly Tolliday, and it's my mission to inspire you to live life to its fullest, travel with an open mind and heart, and let the world show you a new perspective. I'm so grateful you're here with us today, so let's dive right in. Happy exploring. All right, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. I'm so happy to have you here. This is the Transform with Travel podcast, and we have Chris Astle-Smith here. He is a ex-long-distance marathon swimmer. We'll get a lot into that. I'm really excited to share about that story. You're a world traveler since a very young age and a serial entrepreneur, really. You have, you've had your hands in so many different amazing businesses, and we'll definitely get a lot into that entrepreneurial mindset and the entrepreneurial spirit that lives within you. And you're also a father to a beautiful baby girl, and I'm just so excited to hear about all the different adventures that you have to share. The first adventure is really how we've met, how we've known each other, and that's through my husband, Sam. I'd love for you to share how you and Sam got connected and how you know you and I have become friends throughout this journey. Yeah, sure. First of all, thanks for having me. Yeah, happy to be here. Yeah, I mean, meeting Sam was a long time ago now. I think it was like 2010, or it could have been earlier, like maybe 2009. I can't really remember too. It was so long ago. But I seem to remember the story was that there was a friend in a local village to me. I grew up in the countryside in Wiltshire, southwest England. Not an awful lot goes on in a small village. And then a friend that was living close to me, Sam, just sort of rocked up on her doorstep one day. So- sounds like him. <laughs> yeah. And he didn't actually even know her either. It was through a mutual friend. So she calls me up and she's like, there's this Australian guy, random guy at my house. Can you come with me? I was like, yeah, sure. So then I basically got to know Sam, met him, and then we kind of took him under our wing in the local, like, in our kind of local town and friendship group. And uh, yeah, then we started going out on nights out and uh, yeah, just became friends from there. And I think it was about sort of six months later, a friend and I traveled to Australia. And then yeah, part of that leg of that journey, I think we spent a couple of weeks in, in Sydney. And yeah, Sam put us up at his house with his parents as well. Yeah, he told me all about that. You guys having adventures through Sydney and then you became really close with his friend Mel and, you know, you guys have met up through Europe together and when Mel lived in France. And so it just seems like such an amazing combination of friend groups. And then me and you met in person. We met in person for the first time, I believe, in Bali, right? It was in 2018 when you and your fiance at the time were in Indonesia. I think that's when we first met, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's when we first met, yeah, just randomly. I didn't know that you guys were there. And then I sort of saw something on Instagram about Sam being there. And I just messaged him and he's like, yeah, I'm still here. Yeah, we met up for drinks. Yeah, we went out to Old Man's in uh, Chenggu and kind of went around that whole area. And it was really fun to be able to meet you too and then watch your, and at the time, fiancé, now wife's journey and having a baby. And it's just been really cool to like see each other grow over the last the last few years, I guess way more than a few years for you and Sam. But I'd love to talk a little bit about your background, just you know, traveling as a kid and having the world kind of opened up to you as a kid, as a young adult, really taking a lot of leaps of faith of adventures. And that eventually lands you in a hospitality school in Switzerland. I'd love to hear like that origin story for your passion for travel. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that just sort of came naturally. I was fortunate enough to do a lot of sort of traveling with my family and my father 
when I was younger, he used to travel a lot for work. And so, yeah, we'd go on sort of families, family holidays along the, when he was working, sort of tie that in together, business and pleasure. And then, yeah, he started working and I started sort of helping him out on some of the work trips as well. So I'd go, him and I would go away and, and yeah, it's kind of just sort of deciding what I wanted to do when I kind of got older. I enjoyed staying in five-star hotels. and I, It was such a passion for mine. I don't know why, just like that sort of hospitable nature. I just really, really enjoyed it. So that's why I wanted to um, ultimately one day, my dream back then was to own my own sort of hotel. And that's why I went on to study hospitality management. Amazing. And so you studied in Switzerland, correct? That's right. Yeah. So obviously Switzerland's the number one hospitality programs in the world, but was there anything in particular about Switzerland as a country that drew you to it? No, not really. It was literally that. Like That was the reason why we had heard that it was the best place to study it. And uh, at the time, I actually didn't, I didn't feel too comfortable like going away at age 18 to go and live in another country. I was sort of saying, oh yeah, I just want to stay in the UK where, and go to unis where my close friends are. Because I'm from the countryside in Wiltshire where sort of you don't really do that too often like just completely move away at the age of 18 to go and live in another country and yeah so it was because we knew that that school was supposed supposedly one of the best for studying that and then it was like my parents that actually pushed me to go to that school and then we went out over there to go and visit a couple of them in Switzerland and yeah I was um, pretty drawn on the one that I chose which was La Roche in the end. Yeah which is like one of the the top school in the world. So that's amazing. And we had just put two and two together just backstage right before we pressed record that we actually were in Switzerland about two or three train stops away from each other in 2013. So you were studying in Lausanne, I think that's where La Roche is. And then I was studying at Swiss Hotel Management School in Laysen. And we were at the same time, the same year, just a couple train stops away from each other studying hotel management. So that I think that I love yeah. that connection. That's weird. Yeah. For me, Switzerland was just such a beautiful place. Like it's very, very expensive, especially as a uni student. But I just love the nature aspect to it. I love the people. I love how clean it was. So it was a really good launching point for me, especially th being able to travel through Europe and being from the U.S. and not having really been to Europe before. So you said that you wanted to own your own. You said you wanted to own your own hotel. And from just following your journey over the past few years, I've noticed that you've had your hand in the flourishing and thriving of so many businesses. So has the entrepreneurial spirit, has that that idea of always wanting to own something of your own, has that been something that's been ingrained in you since you were little? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've always wanted to have my own businesses running, continually trying to just sort of figure that whole thing out. But yeah, sort of from a young age, selling firecrackers and sweets and things like that at school. And then even at uni, we were a family business at home, we're launching sort of a supplement line. And so I would take the trials of that over to Switzerland and sell all the protein powders at school to all my friends. Definitely always something I've had in me. And I think it, it won't ever change. I'll, I'll be sort of making businesses till the day I die, I think. Yeah. And what about it? What about the from ideation to execution to like constantly reinventing brands? Like what about it do you love? just all of it to be honest i like the creativity a lot like I, I really enjoy the yeah sort of that coming up with an idea and then forming that into something tangible yeah i really enjoy that side of things enjoy branding and yeah just sort of growing something i think from scratch and just doing something every day that improves that and makes it grow 
Yeah, I really love that, that desire for building something out of nothing, or like you said, like having, building something into a purpose. And I think that's a really great transition really to talk about your journey in marathon swimming and and swimming the English channel is that desire for something more and really putting a purpose and a meaning to what you're doing. Can you dive into a little bit into like what sparked that in you to decide, okay, I'm going to swim the English channel and what what the cause that you did it for and just all the, the whole journey. It's such a mission. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about that adventure you went on. Yeah, sure. So it was around sort of 2016. I've always been quite into my sort of health and fitness. I used to swim a lot when I was younger. That was sort of my sport. I used to swim, play rugby, and those were my kind of two sports that I played or did. Yeah, finished uni in 2014. And after that, was just really sort of into the gym. And then, yeah, doing that for a few years. And I just kind of got a bit bored of it, to be honest. I didn't really feel that there was that sort of end goal to work towards. So I wanted to give myself a challenge to do something bigger, really. And then the thing that really kind of sparked it on for me was when 2016, I went traveling to Peru and hiked the Inca Trail. Uh, So that's a sort of four day, I think it's 40 something kilometer trek. And yeah, just that feeling of like doing something bigger and then having that starting point and finishing point, something inside of me felt really good. And then I did another one hike. There's only a small sort of climb in the UK, in Wales, Snowdonia. So it's not that big. But yeah, I did that with some friends and just came off of that. And I, I was with a friend in the car and we were talking about challenges and things like that. And, and then I said, oh, I reckon it might be possible to swim the channel. And then it was just a sort of a joke conversation at the start. And uh, he was like, well, why don't you do it? And then he started looking up on his phone, what you need to do, all the requirements that are needed. And then it was a long journey back. I think it was like six hours. So that whole time he had basically almost convinced me to do it by the time we got back. And then I, yeah, I got home and I told my family, yeah, I think I'm going to try and attempt the channel. And then, yeah, I got the support from my family, uh, which was really nice. And then after that, it was about sort of finding a coach working towards it and just crossing all of those hurdles along the way is like how do you even swim the channel do you need a support boat who do you take on the boat what do you eat what do you drink can you wear a wetsuit no there's all these different kind of questions and you just have to take it day by day really step by step so uh yes started doing a lot of kind of personal research and then um, found a coach within the next couple of weeks I think and then I met with him and yeah he went through quite a lot of my questions and I was pretty convinced that I was going to attempt it by that was in the around April 2016 I met my coach and then we had basically confirmed the tentative date by August 2017. Okay cool and so walk me through that training because you've been a swimmer before you know what that's like it's super intense I was a competitive swimmer for 12 years I know what that's like it's morning morning practices afternoon practices dry land training it's constant but I'm also training in Fort Lauderdale Florida so it's a little bit different to training in indoor pools or in or you're now you're training I'm assuming outside a lot to train for the channel what was that like for you to like now get your head back into gear for like full-blown athletic competition training Yeah, well, I mean, when I say I used to swim, that was when I was a lot younger. So probably from 10 years old till 16, 17. And I hadn't really kind of done too much swimming training after that. And so at this point, I'm age 24. And then, yeah, just get kind of, I got back in the pool and I swam two kilometers, which is about 80 lengths of a 25 meter pool. By the end of it, I was completely dead. And I was like, how am I going to swim 35 kilometers across the English Channel if I can't even do two kilometers right now. 
so yeah i did that and then it's all about just kind of setting those small goals then it's like okay well next time i go in how many am i going to do and then again and then just keep progressing and keep training and then as the weeks go by you start to uh, get faster you start to swim further and then I started meeting up with my coach more regularly and he had a swim training squad that specialized in marathon swimming so all the guys um, that were in that team had a goal of of some sort of open water swim really many of them on the team had done the channel before they had done loads of other ocean long distance ocean swimming so it was a great um, great group of people to immerse myself with shout out red top swim in east london it was a great group to immerse myself with while i was training made some really really good friends actually some friends that i'm still so close with today yeah and then we used to go down to dover a lot which is the port where all the ferries take off to go to france so we used to go down there into dover harbor frequently in the summer of 2016 to get sort of get our bodies used to the cold water and then we used to do a lot of indoor pool training but that would involve a lot of kind of sprint work and the sea stuff was more the long distance kind of training so we'd swim sometimes two hours three hours there and then i decided to do lake windermere in 2016 which is a 18 kilometer lake in the lake district and so that's half the distance of the english channel so i thought right if i can do half the distance in you know a year out of the channel then i'll feel confident that i can do the full distance in 2017 and so I attempted that and it was honestly one of the most painful experiences of my life. I really wasn't ready to attempt something like that long. My coach wasn't with me. I just had a couple of friends in a kayak or sort of like rowing boat alongside me. And they obviously weren't kind of trained to know when I should stop mm. swimming. I actually encountered a lot of issues along the way. The food that I was eating wasn't being digested properly. So that meant I wasn't being hydrated. My body was really kind of burning muscle and because it didn't have any sugar or carbohydrates to burn at this point because nothing was going down. My body wasn't able to actually rehydrate myself with the electrolytes that I was drinking along mm. the way. And when I actually finally made it, I threw everything up. Oh my God. I didn't think I was going to make it, to be honest. About 10 kilometers in, my shoulder started playing up and then it started to get worse every kilometer. And so I, I felt like sort of quitting because it was so painful, but I knew in my mind that if I can't do half this length, then I won't be able to do the full length next year. It's going to really throw me off mentally. So I pushed through it. And actually, that was probably the worst thing to do, to be honest, because I made it way worse. And I actually like tore one of bicep tendons. Mm. So that disrupted all of my training for the next year. I had to completely learn a new style of stroke that would enable me to not to get so much shoulder mm. pressure and shoulder pain. You know, I had to go through rehab. I had to go and meet with a specific acupuncture specialist who was able to really get into those regions to make the muscles easier to train so that it wouldn't flare up or wouldn't get inflamed. So yeah, it was a really, really bad, bad decision. But looking <laughs> back on it, you know, everything happens for a reason. And if that hadn't have happened, maybe that issue would have come up during the channel. Mm. And then I wouldn't really be able to overcome it because my stroke technique would be completely wrong. So yeah, I went through that whole period of training throughout the year and then just getting progressively harder and harder. So around sort of January time, I think I was doing 30 kilometers a week. Oh By March, I was doing sort of 40 or 50 kilometers a week of training. By June, July, I think the maximum I got up to was about 100 kilometers one week. 
yeah, so it just kind of got progressively harder and harder as it got on. I had to gain 10 kilos of fat as well, because when you actually do the channel, you're not allowed to wear a wetsuit. So that was one of the things that we found out to to have the whole thing properly ratified. Uh, you can't wear a wetsuit. Right. It's like for buoyancy, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it helps with insulation mm. and buoyancy. So it kind of, to make it a level playing field, they just say no wetsuit. For men, you're only allowed pair of speedos a hat and goggles and that's it oh my god it. wow for a florida girl i can't even imagine because i'm like cold in 80 degree water so i can't even imagine being immersed in the far north atlantic waters like that <laughs> like, and just being so cold and just swimming like it's just i can't even imagine so you had to put on 10 kilos of fat just to be able to sustain yourself through this challenge for the insulation yeah so this wow. fat was there really for the insulation yeah yeah, and you have to qualify to do the swim as well. So that means you have to do a six-hour swim in less than 15 degree Celsius. Wow. So I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit. Wow. But yeah, so you had to do that for six hours. That was actually also really difficult because then it's a real, real mental game of battling the cold. Mm. Uh, so you have to train your mind to start thinking of warm things. You know, you're thinking about sitting close to the fire or holding a hot cup of coffee, all of these small little things you have to train in your mind and tell yourself, oh, I'm really warm. I'm really mm. warm, warm right mm. now. But in actual fact, you're super, super cold and your body's, yeah. Yeah, you have to keep moving a lot. So during the swimming training in the water, you, you can't really rest. Well, first of all, that's against the rules of the channel swimming sort of association is you can't rest, you can't touch the boat, you have to tread water. But secondly, if you actually do take time to tread, tread water for a few minutes, have a chat to people on the boat, then you're going to get cold because your body's not right. moving. So you're going to then, you know, the risk of hypothermia is going to go up. So you have to really just keep moving all the time to keep the body generating the heat. Of course, the more fat you have, the more time uh, that you can sort of spend in the water having a laugh. Mm. Some people that do hold more body fat, I think they can probably get away with that. I wasn't super skinny, but I didn't have loads of body fat on me. But yeah, I just kept going. This episode is sponsored by Rising Nature Retreats. Are you feeling called to explore the world, tick off your bucket list, and make lifelong friends along the way? Are you overwhelmed from planning the logistics of your trips or sick of feeling like you need a vacation from your vacation when you return home? Rising Nature Retreats offers world-class travel experiences infused with daily yoga and wellness, personal development workshops, unique adventure and cultural excursions, and holistic local cuisines. Experience the world as you elevate your wellness. Return home feeling rejuvenated and empowered to bring what you learn about other cultures and about yourself back home with you. This is the adventure you've been waiting for. Join us in 2024 to explore Thailand, Portugal, or Greece. Visit risingnatureretreats.com or at risingnatureretreats on Instagram and Facebook for all the brochures and information on upcoming international retreats and local classes and events in South Florida. That's incredible. So before we get to like the actual challenge itself and that day, you talk a lot about the physical training that you did. And then you just touched on a little bit of that mindset training that you had to kind of move through, right? On top of the physical training, did you have any mindset coaching or therapy or any sort of coach besides the physical aspect of it that was kind of helping you through these like mindset hurdles that you really have to get through? It's way more of a at the end of the day, like your body does what it does and you have to physically prepare, yeah. but it's that the last 20%, that last 10% is truly mind over matter. 
Yeah, so I think you just sort of train your mind. That comes with all of the long distance training, all of that immersion in the cold water, cold showers every day. So you're sort of training your body to do things that are super uncomfortable. Mm. And then just, yeah, doing longer and longer distances. Because I just thought, why not? I had a couple of sessions of with a hypnotherapist. Oh, cool. Yeah, so I think I did three sessions. I don't know if it made a difference, but I just thought at this point, kind of, anything will help because it's going to be such a mental battle swimming for, you know, 12 to 13 hours that I just thought anything that can help me with my mindset is going to help. Mm -hmm. So I did do that. Yeah. And so previously you talked about this desire for something more and setting yourself a challenge. And it kind of seems like a common theme with everything that you do, the challenge of starting a business, the challenge of doing these hikes, the challenge of the English channel. I know you did, but I, and I want you to be able to share it yourself, but what was the cause that you kind of like attached to this channel? And I know you did a lot of fundraising and a lot of social sharing around this cause. I'd love for you to share what was your why beyond setting yourself a personal challenge for this. Yeah. So of course I did want to attach it to something bigger and something more meaningful. I don't know why, but I've always had this kind of emotional attached, something that really kind of, yeah, hits home to me is children working with children mm. who you know are less fortunate so i wanted to work with a charity that helped children with life limiting conditions um, achieve their dreams so the charity i chose is similar to make a wish foundation but it's a lot smaller um, kind of business it's a real low, small uk local charity that helps kids with life limiting conditions achieve their dreams up to from the young age up to age 21 and I also wanted to feel part of it as well. So I met with them and I wanted to know what children are directly benefiting from from my fundraising mm -hmm. efforts. That was a real part of it along the way was the, the fact that I got really close with them and they told me all of the children that had been directly helped and what sort of activities and dreams they had to go and watch. And it can be as small as going to watch an Arsenal game or going on a trip to Disneyland or becoming a mermaid for the day, yeah. you know, things like that. And so they shared all those stories with me of all the children that had directly benefited from the money that I had helped raise. So that was really nice as well to, to rather than just raise the money and just throw it into a, a big charity and sort of not see it again. I joined them for lots of events as well with lots of the children. So yeah, it was super fun and super, yeah, kind of uh, warming. Yeah, rewarding for sure. Yeah, very rewarding. And I'm so glad that I picked that charity. And what was the name of that charity? Sorry, the name was called Dreams Come, Dreams Come True. True. Okay, I'm going to link it in the show notes at the end so people can go and check it out as well. And you did a specific uh, publicity stunt for this charity and to raise money for the challenge that you were doing. I'd love for you to share a little bit about this awesome, almost like a little bit of a prank. Like it was pretty funny. And I share it with everyone that I see. I'm like, I know this guy that did this really cool thing. And so I'd love for you to, one, tell us what you did. And then two, how'd you come up with this idea? And also, how'd you get away with it? How did you pull it off? <laughs> Yeah, sure. So when I kind of set myself the goal of how much I wanted to raise for the charity, you know, I initially said £20,000. And then I was like, no, you know what, 25000 you know, let's try and raise £25,000. And, you know, that's a lot of money to be able to just kind of ask your friends and people that you know for to raise that much. Like most people probably would raise maybe a maximum of a few thousand pounds. And uh, so I knew that we had to do some sort something bigger to get in more awareness to really get the additional fund raising that we wanted to hit that goal. And uh, yeah, I came up with this idea with a friend of mine. So a friend of mine who was actually working with our company at the time, he was very good at like videography and video editing. And so came up with the idea with him about stealing a London Boris bike 
for your listeners that might not know yeah. what that is, it's uh, similar to the New York City bikes, but they're super iconic in London. So if you've ever been to London, you've definitely seen them. These red bikes, Santander is the, is the bank, but they're, that they sponsor it. So they're Santander bikes, but everyone knows them as yeah. Boris bikes because Boris Johnson, who was the mayor of London at the time and imp- implemented this whole scheme. And so, yeah, they're super, super famous in London. So what we decided was, oh, are we able to take something and take it around the world to different areas, something that hasn't really gone there or been there. Nobody's seen it in other areas of the world. It's super iconic to London, but would somebody recognize that in Dubai or would someone recognize that in San Francisco? So we came up with this plan and we put a bit of a budget down together of taking the Boris bike, basically stealing it and taking it all around the world and making a a viral video of it. The, The last clip will be me down in Dover, cycling along the cliffs in Dover and sort of explaining the purpose of the video and you know for anybody that's seen it and wants to donate to the charity then to link put the link in the bio the story was me and alex my friend we took this boris bike all around the world i think we went to seven cities in the end but it, it sort of looked that it went kind of everywhere the story is quite a long one but we dismantled the bike they actually have like tamper evident locks and, and bolts and things so my brother had to like make specific tools using his mill to that could unlock the specific oh my God. Like, tamper evident. So we did that. And then we found this bike box that was big enough to take this bike because it's also huge and they weigh like 20 kilos. Yeah, they're huge. Yeah, they're not light either. And so we found a way to dismantle it. And then we put it in this massive bike box and we just put it in the oversized luggage in Heathrow. And so the first stop was New York. And then we made it to New York. And funny enough as well, we were so scared that we were going to get caught with a boris bike because in the uk people know what it is but nowhere else they would know what it is so our biggest fear was like leaving london with this boris bike so we ordered this like spray paint stuff which was almost like it's like this this glue Mm. that you could like peel off so it was this pink spray paint glue stuff so we sprayed that all over the bike so we were like we'll spray it so disguise it and then when we land in new york we can just like peel it off and then we're all good to go so we did that. We spray painted this whole bike pink and then landed in New York and spent hours peeling this like this stuff off. Oh, my God. This is so much more elaborate than the original story that I knew. So this is so good to hear this side of the story. <laughs> the effort it took is incredible. Yeah, it was a lot, lot of yeah. thought went into it. And then um, we got to New York and then we got all the shots. It was super good as well because everywhere we went, Either Alex had a friend or I had a friend that we could stay with. So we weren't sort of staying in hotels and things. We were keeping the budget low and uh, staying with friends. And uh, yeah, and then went to New York, got all the shots of the Brooklyn Bridge, uh, Times Square, Central Park, and then went on to Las Vegas was next and stayed with a friend there, went, got uh, video clips of going down the strip, meeting Elvis. (laughs) Then we ended up in san francisco got some shot this one we did actually stay in a motel for this one and when we arrived there was this typhoon or this yeah hurricane or something that was happening and it and we couldn't get any shots of anything so we were only there for two or three days we were gutted because when we arrived it was just raining all day it was a massive storm and you couldn't get any shots of anything it wouldn't look good on yeah. camera at all so we we're like oh it's this complete waste of a leg of the journey and then on the day that we were supposed to leave, I think our flight was at like 1 p.m. But then it, it cleared up around sort of 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. So we got up really early on the day that we were supposed to leave. We spent like two days in a motel just going to a coffee shop every day because there was nothing else to yeah. do. 
yeah, and then we woke up at 6 a.m. and uh, went and got the shot of the Golden Gate Bridge, the one that we were really after. And yeah, and we got it and super crystal clear day, blue skies and got the shot and then got on the plane to was a stopover in London. And then we were off to Paris and then we stayed with Mel, Sam's friend yeah. in Paris. I got all the way over there, got the shots of the Eiffel Tower, the Louvre, and then went to Rome, got shots with the Colosseum down there and then off to Dubai the Burj Khalifa, the Burj Al Arab. And then the craziest leg of the journey was when we went to Delhi in India. Oh, yes. This is my favorite one. I love this clip. <laughs> yeah. So the, that is our favorite. It is definitely the best part of yeah. the trip because it's like neither of Alex or I had been to India before. We didn't know what to expect. We took this bike to, to the streets of Delhi. We went to the Taj Mahal because we really wanted a clip with the bike at the Taj. But when we got there, there was like really high level security. You couldn't get in. I don't even know if they were letting people in with cameras. Like you had to go through the body scans. There was no way they were letting us in with this big, massive bike. And so we went in, we saw the Taj because we were there. And then when we were out the back of the Taj, I saw over this river, I saw like a sort of a patch of land. And I was like, if we can get there, I reckon we can get a good shot of the Taj Mahal in the background. And so I said to our taxi driver, can you take us there? And he was like, yeah. And so he took us all the way around the back. It was probably like 45 minute drive to get yeah. there. And we got there and it was also guarded, but not in the same level of high security. A couple of guys there guarding the gates of this sort of plot of land. Yeah. And we just said to them, can we go in quickly to get a shot? And they were like, no drones, no drones. And we were like, please, can we go in to just get a shot on a normal camera then? And he was like, how much? And oh, so gosh. basically, yeah, we bribed them. And I think it was the equivalent of like five pounds or $10 or something really low. And then they let us in for like 10 minutes and we got the shot that we needed, got back and that was it. And we did it all in two weeks, two and a half weeks. Oh my gosh, Jesus. The, your body would have no idea what time zone you were in by that stage. Yeah, exactly. And then we put it all together. It took us a while to kind of put it all together. And then we just put it on YouTube and then just started trying to get it some attention by reaching out to local tabloids and yeah, news outlets. So what was your fine when you finally brought it back? Surely it was overdue. You're a couple hour leisure, leisurely yeah, stroll. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I looked into the like the sort of terms and conditions when I did it, and they have like a flat rule if a bike is lost or yeah. stolen, then they charge you three hundred pounds. Oh, okay. So I knew like the maximum I'm going to lose is three hundred pounds, and I so I was like, I took the hit, sunk cost, and then but it was funny when actually the sort of tabloids and stuff picked it up, picked up the art like the. It took a while. It took a couple of days. We were like messaging loads of editors, and nobody was really pushing yeah. it. And then it took one, I think it was the Evening Standard, which is like a free kind of newspaper that goes all across London Underground. They got in touch and they were like, yeah, actually, this is a really cool story. We want to share it. And after they shared it, then it it was like a snowball. Like all of the other places started sharing it. The Daily Mail, other things like the Lad Bible, Unilad, things like that. Yeah, the Metro. So all these other kind of Lonely Planet, people like that started picking up, Business Insider. Yeah, and then... The funny thing was, what I was remembering was that you were talking about the fine of the £300. It's funny because the Daily Mail posted this. I remember they posted this article. It wasn't like any opportunity to like slam a big bank. Yeah, of course. They were like, (laughs) yeah, rather than guy steals bike and goes around the world, it was charity man comes back from bike ride and is slammed with a £300 fine upon his return in Heathrow. Yeah, right. (laughs) 
So kind of for, it's just funny for, how the yeah. media really, yeah, like how they twist yeah. things. It's just they completely twist and things, yeah. But it was pretty funny. The bike, did they turn around and say, "All right, fine, for a good cause, we'll let you get away with it"? That was part of our intention was that the bank was going to get so much publicity from this, and the type of publicity that money can't buy. You know, banks as people. Yeah, it's such a human story. It's a human story that banks have a yeah. really hard time spinning. So. Yeah, nobody really trusts yeah. banks. So the fact that they got all of that publicity for free, I mean, loads of people even commenting on the video saying, oh yeah, businesses are getting more creative with their marketing efforts. They, they thought it was all paid for by oh, the bank. Gosh. Yeah, they basically got so much free publicity for it. And so we thought, oh, well, they might donate to the swim or something like a big chunk of the 25,000. In the end, they just gave me 500 pounds. Obviously, I had 300 for the fine, and then they donated 500 to the charity, which was still grateful yeah, for it. Yeah, but I mean, but, it's uh, a bank. Come yeah. on. <laughs> I mean, they're a bank. Yeah, come on. They, have... they had a really great opportunity there to make the story even bigger. So they yeah. could have capitalized really on it massively, have. but they didn't. Yeah. So, okay. Well, first of all, I, I think that's like one of the best adventures I've ever heard. I can't even believe that was done in two weeks. I mean, all those places that you went to. So you get back from this big adventure, you're raising, you're continuing to fundraise, you're continuing to train the day of the swim arrives. So tell me a little bit about that. If I remember correctly, there were, you have to have a really good sense of the weather and the currents and the conditions. Tell me a little bit about you leading up to that day and then the swim itself. And then we can talk a little bit about life post-swim. Yeah. yeah, It's a two-week window, really. There's four people in this kind of heat. So when you book your slot, you might be, you know, number one. If you're really early and you book the slot very early in advance, you might be number one in that heat. So that means during that two-week window, the first person in the heat will go when the conditions say that it's safe to go. So I was number three initially in the heat. And then over getting closer, I think one of the people dropped out. So I moved to number two, which is really lucky. And then number one had gone, I can't remember what date it was, I think on the th 12th or the 13th of August. And so then I was up next. So it's a two week window, but actually it's only really one week of a spring tide. I mm. think it's either one week or two weeks of the spring the neap tide sorry the neap tide is the weaker tide and then the spring tide is the stronger tide so yes it's a two-week window of a neap tide i was number two so i was ready to go they gave me the call on 13th of august about 9 a.m in the morning saying you're going tonight likely you're probably going to go really early in the morning so 2 a.m on the 14th so had to prepare myself, you know, mentally. Mm -hmm. I had told the charity that I was, you know, going tonight. They had come, planned to come down and, and see me off in Dover. I told my family, they all came down. My friends, loads of people came down. So we were ready to set off at about 2 a.m. Mentally preparing myself all day. Felt so ready for it. Was super hyped. We were on the boat getting greased up with the Vaseline and the sun cream. Everyone that came to see me were down on the beach. And then this is a crazy part of the story. This episode is brought to you by Child & Company. Child & Company is South Florida's first family-friendly office space featuring private offices, a professional content creation studio, and childcare for hybrid work and work-from-home parents located in Boca Raton. Child & Company is founded on the belief that you shouldn't have to choose between raising a family and being career-driven. Their core mission is to create an environment where family and work can exist in harmony. The best part to me as a mom is that you can pop in and breastfeed your baby or have lunch with your toddler if you like and then pop back into your office for your Zoom meeting. 
which I think is so key, especially for newborn moms, going back to work. It's the perfect transition from emerging out of the newborn bubble and getting back to the business you love. Child & Company provides you the flexibility to work in a beautifully designed, ergonomic private office with insanely good Wi-Fi connection and soundproofing while just being steps away from your child. They have monthly themes that they base their lessons on, like exploring the animals of the Amazon, which I obviously love when children get opportunities to learn more about the world and build a sense of curiosity. Child & Company offers weekly and monthly classes and events, like Zambini, music class for babies, mindful cooking for toddlers, big kid yoga, and mindful mama community events, and so much more. I've been a member since February 2023, utilizing their private offices and their professional content creation studio. Child & Company is where all of the magic happens for this podcast. Their beautiful recording studio is soundproofed with state-of-the-art equipment, microphones, lighting, and cameras. So you can record your podcast, course content, meditation clips, and anything else you might want to record for your business. The Child & Company team truly feels like family. They are an extension of my team over here at Rising Nature Retreats and the Transform with Travel podcast, as well as an extension of my own family. If you're local to Palm Beach and Broward County, do yourself a favor and check out Child & Company. Visit www.childandcompany.com or head over to Instagram at Child & Company. But as we're just about to pull in, onto the beach so you kind of got to pull in about 100 meters from the shore and then you you're supposed to swim to shore Mm. and then clear the water and start in england Mm. and then go so as we're getting closer we hear this noise the boat makes a noise and we didn't really know what it was and my coach said that oh be careful when you're jumping in off the boat because you know we may have just hit some rocks and then i'm waiting to go i've got the goggles on you know the, the speedos are on sun cream everything's up there ready to go super hyped i'm on facebook live talking to everyone about you know how excited i am and thanks for joining and then after sort of five minutes we weren't going anywhere and i was starting to worry what's going on and then we found out that actually the complete kind of freak accident the prop shaft of the engine had sheared off of the engine oh my god this is like unseen in like channel swimming history like nobody has ever seen this happen like a boat actually kind of break down so super rare the conditions were supposed to be perfect as well when we were out there it was super warm the water temperature was warm the water was flat everything was ready to go Mm. i had done all my carb loading i'd done tapering off all of my training for a week so i was so ready and energized and ready to go and then they basically told me no you're not swimming tonight and so i'm like what oh wow it's like a dream you can't even imagine that you're not going to swim tonight you prepared for 18 months for this and then you're told oh you're not swimming tonight and so I said oh when am I swimming and they're saying well you're not booked on any other boats so that you have to wait for this boat to get repaired oh my god and if it goes over the two-week window then the slots open up to the other people again who, who are booked on another window so the next kind of 10 days were a real whirlwind for me I didn't know when I was going my coach didn't know when I was going he didn't really kind of know what to advise me to do either because nobody had been through this before and then this was a real mental battle this was really really tough it was probably the hardest part of everything was these 10 days of oh and then I started to get worried am I not training enough am I training too little what if my shoulder starts to flare up again and then I start to get real worried and just felt completely not ready for it at all like my mental state had been thrown off like completely 
So yeah, and then I'm calling up every day. Is there any news on the boat? Is there any news on the boat? And then they're like, no, no, no. And then it, it gets real close to the end of the window. And then at this point, the tide is just turning from the neap tide to the spring tide. So which is like the basically a stronger tide. My coach phones me up and he says, look, the boat's ready now. You can go, but it will be on a spring tide, which is a stronger tide. But he said, you know, I think you're quick enough to swim it on a spring tide. Uh, do you want to go for it? And I said, if I don't go for it now, then, you know, the only other option is to potentially go next year, isn't it? And he's like, yeah. And I said, I can't, I cannot train myself mentally for another whole year for this. I have to go now. And so I was like, okay, let's do it. And this was on the 24th of August. He's, he phoned me up and said that. And so it was the same again. We were going to leave at around sort of one or 2 a.m. on the 25th. So that night, and yeah, and I told my friends, everyone I'm going, but course this time everyone's got other plans they hadn't kind of accounted for this nobody really came down to see me off it wasn't the same sort of hype i was very very nervous on the boat i wasn't confident at all i was shaking and then yeah got in the water i think it was like quarter to two and then swam over to france and then off i went and yeah and then i was swimming for four hours in the darkness and that was the hardest part really of the swim was swimming at night time i hadn't done too much of the night swimming training I uh, got stung in the face by the jellyfish when it was dark and uh, it was also a bit choppy so I couldn't really find my rhythm so I was worried you know that I wasn't I was going to overcompensate my shoulders were, were going to flare up again after a while and then after about four hours the sun comes up at around sort of 6 a.m five or six a.m and it was like the most beautiful sunset I've ever seen and the water just went like a mill pond it was just completely flat my shoulders were fine everything was good I saw my friends on the boat people were waking up as well so they were messaging on facebook and they were writing messages on a whiteboard and hanging it off the side of the boat to me so i could read the messages and at that point i knew like right i'm gonna get this done like there's nothing gonna stop me so that point was really the turning point for for me knowing that i'm gonna complete it and so yeah after 11 hours and 43 minutes, I landed on a rock in France. 11 hours. Oh, my God. So I remember watching you. It was like on Facebook Live. And I remember Sam the whole time. He's like, he's got it. He's got it. Like you were just like we were watching. And I mean, I just got chills as you said, told the story because it really seems like such the epitome of like Dark Soul of the Night. You started off in the dark and the jellyfish in the face and it was choppy. And then you just found your rhythm and you went for it. And I literally have chills right now. I just think it's such an incredible story and you had such a purpose behind it. I just... There was, sorry, there was one last thing I forgot yeah. to mention and actually this may also bring you chills because it brings me chills every time I remember it. But that night that it didn't happen, that the boat broke, the forecast and everything was absolutely perfect. But then when we're on the boat and we're waiting to get collected for a few hours because at this time it's 2 a.m. and I don't think we actually got collected from the boat until 6am or 5 or 6am so we were on the boat for a few hours and then out of nowhere this unexpected storm came over like completely unplanned oh wow and then it started raining like crazy and you could see lightning and thunder going all across the channel like lighting up the, the entire channel and it was a complete like i would have not liked to have swum on that day anyway so actually it was so weird because it was almost like something was look someone or something was looking out mm. for me a higher power was really looking out for me that day to say no you're not swimming today it's not your day yeah. wow so yeah that's the really crazy part absolutely yeah. and so so you land in france and i'm only assuming like there's probably so many emotions going through you on top of trying to figure out gravity again <laughs> like figure out your body on land <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about what that felt like to land in France and realize that you've done it and then 
talk a little bit about the life post challenge, like life without having this like insane, bigger purpose in your life every single day, like what that was like for you as an athlete. And yeah, what that was like. Sure. Like landing on France is actually really just kind of surreal. It was almost like a dream state. I climbed aboard the rock because you're also on a cliffside. There's nobody there on like watching you know, saying, oh, well done, you know, from the sidelines. It's like you clear the water and then you just sort of have a little kind of cheer to yourself and say, yeah, I did it. And then it's like, kind of, what do I do now? And then my coach is like, right, you're yeah. done. Like, let's get back <laughs> on the boat. It's, it's, I was only up there for about 45 seconds, I think, in France. Oh and God. then I got back in the water and, uh, well, got on the, the rib and went back to the boat to head back to England. So it was weird. I still remember it clearly, though. It's, it's still ingrained in my memory, but yeah, I didn't really do too much. And it was just, it hadn't really kind of sunk in that I had done it. And then, yeah, so completed it in 11 hours, 43 minutes. And then, uh, yeah, and then life after the channel. I mean, everyone's, everyone, I had many people sort of saying, you know, what's the challenge that you have next? What's the next challenge you have after this? You have to prepare, you know, something else ahead because when you reach it, you know, you might feel very lost without it. And I was just thinking in my head, that's not going to be me. I just want to get this swim done and just, that's it. That was my challenge. I wanted to do it, complete it. And that, that was it. I couldn't imagine like planning anything else. That was it for me. And then I had a kind of a few months of, my goal was really just to lose the weight that I had gained. So my housemate was a PT and he helped me like get back on track and lose the weight quite quickly, actually, within kind of two or three months. Yeah. And then after that, things got really weird because I had this complete loss of direction, complete lack of purpose. It was so strange to kind of imagine. I didn't feel fulfilled in you know what I was doing at the time and just felt so, so lost. Yeah really down and, and then started to get quite depressed to be honest so that was quite like kind of a low part of my life and it lasted probably like nine months so yeah and then and then I got a job offer after that nine months actually for the university in Switzerland that I used to oh. go to and it was a role that I really got excited about it was about sort of recruiting new students and helping recruit new students to to study there and experience you know, they may have experienced the, the amazing things that I did. So I, yeah, I got really excited about that role and I took that on. And, and then after that, I slowly started to feel a lot better about myself. And it gave me that kind of purpose again, sort of to wake up in the morning. And, and then, yeah, I did that for a couple of years, two and a half years, I think. And then, yeah, I got another job offer back in the, the supplement space with, a, funny enough, with Alex, who's the friend that I did the Boris bike oh, trip with. Fun. He, yeah, so it's come full circle completely. And he and his partner, well, she's Pilates instructor, but then she started doing YouTube fitness classes on YouTube. And she'd been doing it for a few years. And then COVID hit, her channel just skyrocketed from 30,000 subscribers to a million, two million, three million. So yeah, she got quite well known uh, on YouTube, actually became the UK's uh, largest fitness YouTuber. Oh, wow. And Alex and her then decided, right, we, we want to, you know, we want to, we've got a massive audience now that follow Lily. We want to create some, a supplement brand off of that. And then I had background in um, supplements and yeah, I said, he said, do you want to come in and, and manage that side of the business? And then I was like, yeah, absolutely. I couldn't think of anything more exciting than basically just to come up with products and set them up from idea to, yeah, to creation. Yeah. So that's what I do. And that's what I do now as well. 
Yeah. And so it, it really sounds like to me, like for you, it's like a story of the importance of purpose, whether it's through work, whether it's through a challenge, your physical wellness with family, now that you have a child, like purpose to you just seems to be such like your North Star, your compass that like helps you move through life's challenges is like you can overcome anything. Literally one of the hardest challenges out there, swimming the English Channel, you can overcome anything if you have that purpose in mind and driving you, you know, to a bigger, bigger meaning. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, exactly. That's what I've really come to learn is having that purpose in anything really. And I think at the moment it's, it's very much to do with, you know, my work and also my, I have another business running on the side and I'm being a new dad, to be honest, that's really the biggest one. That is my purpose now. And I feel like that's probably purpose that many people have when they have children they'll get this almost this second life and that's what I was explaining to my wife the other day was I feel that chapter in your life is a brand new life Mm. you know being a dad is something completely different than before you're now looking after and responsible for somebody else so everything becomes a lot more kind of I guess like serious (laughs) because you have that responsibility but at the same time a lot more meaningful yeah a hundred percent I think that's a beautiful way to look at it You mentioned a side business that you're working on. Can you explain what new and exciting businesses does Chris Astle-Smith have up his sleeve? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sure. So this is actually a business I opened with a friend of mine, Ed. It's a hangover prevention type supplement. The ingredients inside of this product I used to take on nights out with me with my friends and I not wake up with a hangover the next day. All the ingredients inside of it that I would take are studies to show that, that you don't wake up feeling rough the next day so I started taking all these supplements on nights out with me giving it a wrap passing it around the friend group and everyone everyone was always saying oh you've got the supplements Chris like give them to me so I'd take them out and everyone would take them and then a friend of mine Ed said why don't we actually kind of formulate a supplement from all of these other ingredients and market it uh, you know to help make you feel better the next day give you more energy to not make you feel so bad and so yeah then we started this new business it's called Hankia it is going really well we're st- starting to la- learn and master the TikTok kind of algorithm and yeah so it's super fun learning all of that stuff as well and you know lots of things there I've applied to my work with what I do for a full-time job as well so yeah just continually learning and yeah feel a whole sort of sense of fulfillment now yeah it seems like the health and wellness has just been such a core pillar in your life through the supplements through all the health challenges and athletic challenges that you've done so the name of the business is Hang Cure, and I'll make sure to link that in the show notes for everyone listening. Yeah, we're not in the U.S. We're not in the U.S. Well, they can yet, still though, follow you, and when you're ready to launch in the U.S., we'll be ready to go waiting for you. I know Sam will be your number one customer as soon as as soon as you launch here. So, Chris, thank you so much for sharing your story. I am so excited for everyone to hear. I got chills listening to your story, and just like just all of the amazing parallels throughout your entire life. Well, I am so excited to continue to see your adventures, to see all the exciting adventures and challenges and all the things that you're going to rise up to, and especially going on the journey with your young daughter and your beautiful wife. And hopefully we'll be able to connect in person soon somewhere around the world. So I always end these episodes with quick rapid fire questions and they're just based around traveling. So we'll just see what pops up for you. So number one is if you could only go back to one country, place or town in the world, just one place for the rest of your life, where would it be and why? Hmm. That is a good question. I really like Switzerland. I think the memories I had there were just kind of unforgettable and they really shaped 
who I became and the friends that I met there really helped shape me sort of going in after uni, going into the real mm. world. But I know if I went back, it wouldn't be the same because they wouldn't be there. Although the scenery and everything would be, you know, there and the fresh air and the mountains, which I think is what I love the most about Switzerland, they wouldn't be there. So I think the thing I would say is it's probably where I have a, the closest friends, to be honest with you. Mm. But as long as it's not in a big city, yeah. I'm not really too fond of big cities anymore. Yeah. Not now I'm a, a father. Oh, I'm the same. I'm not a big city girl. I remember Sam telling me a story once when he visited you in Switzerland and he rode his bike home from you guys. You guys I guess you guys had bikes from wherever pub you were at down to where your dorm or wherever you were staying. And he rode his bike back in the middle of the snow because he wanted to FaceTime me. But then he didn't have his key or someone wasn't with him to open up the door. So he was just sitting outside in the snow for like a couple hours waiting for, for someone to let him back into where he was staying. I don't even know if you knew that story. <laughs> but I remember him FaceTiming me in the snow being like, it's just so cold out here. <laughs> Oh, I can't remember that. I think it may have been a scooter. Yeah, or it was something. something—a bike, a scooter, or something. Yeah, it was funny. Something like yeah. that. Yeah. Okay. Not the crazy. Number story. two is what's number one on your bucket list right now? What? Somewhere to go and see. Somewhere to go and see a business or whatever, family, whatever it is. Number one on your bucket list. Where we really want to go as a family and travel and visit one day is Japan. Mm. Yeah, we've never been there. It's somewhere that's always kind of excited us, but. We'll maybe we'll wait till our daughter's a bit older can experience that. Yeah, herself. I love that. I haven't been to Japan either, so it's definitely on the list. Okay, so number three is what's the biggest life lesson you've learned while traveling? Don't be afraid to just meet new people. Mm. I think, yeah, because you don't know where those people are going to end up and how they're going to be a part of your life. And that's going back to that story of Alex, who I worked with. You know, he's how I actually found out or got got in touch with Alex was a friend of mine Max is a guy I went to uni with so it's his brother mm. so it's all kind of everything's connected throughout life and you know if you don't go out there and meet new people and become friends with you know new people then your life may be a little more closed than open yeah or like your friend calling you saying hey there's this Australian guy at my doorstep I need I need someone here and then you go and live with his family for a month or two so yeah exactly another crazy like <laughs> yeah full, full circle story and here yeah. we are now chatting on a podcast and there I was traveling around on a Boris bike and visiting staying with his friend yeah. Mel in, uh, Paris, in Paris yeah Amazing. Yeah, and we were good friends when he was in London. So, yeah. That whole concept of just saying yes and meeting new people. I mean, that's like the key to traveling for sure. And then the last question is, what is your biggest piece of advice that you can give to someone who's just starting out or wanting to travel and not sure really how to start or where to go? I guess pick your destination. Mm. Maybe the right, the right answer to that is, you know, there's lots of destinations that are make it easier for people to travel to. Also depends on your age, so it depends who's asking. But you know, if somebody was 18 and telling me where should I go and travel, I might say somewhere like Thailand because and Southeast Asia because it's really set up for backpackers and and it may seem kind of daunting. But when you get there, things are very easy. You meet people easily. You're it's built for backpackers really. It's easy to get on a bus and travel from one end of the country to the other. But yeah, I think that's what I would say is is pick your destination. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. So I would just like to open it up for you to share how people can connect with you, how they can find you on Instagram or social or your, your business, Hank here. How can people connect with you? 
Sure. Yeah. So the business, we're on Instagram, we're on TikTok. So it's hang.cure over on there. And then, yeah, I don't have too much of a, like sort of a personal brand at the moment. So, but I have to, got an Instagram, Chris Astle, and then an S on the end. So yeah, that's my Instagram page. Awesome. I'll link to everything in the show notes as well. But thank you so much, Chris. I've enjoyed listening to your story so much and I can't wait for our listeners to hear. And I'm excited to yeah, like I said, hopefully meet up somewhere around the world. We'll pick somewhere cool and, and we'll bring all the kids together. That would be nice. And if you ever come over this way to Europe, you're obviously more than welcome to stay we with us. We are actually planning next year. We're going to do, I think, Ireland and Scotland. So maybe we can make a little pit stop in England come or by, you guys yeah, can come up definitely. and see us in Scotland. That'd be fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We want to go up to Scotland. I've be, yeah, been a few times, but Selena's never been. So yeah, we'd All like right, to go there. Let's do it. We'll see you next year then. <laughs> All right. Brilliant. Sounds Thank good. Thank you so much. All right. Take care, Kelly. Bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Transform with Travel podcast. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you never miss an episode of inspiration, adventure, and exploration. If you felt inspired by this episode, please rate and review in whatever streaming app you're listening from. This allows us to spread the word even more and continue to serve up weekly doses of adventure. As always, we'd love if you could share the episode with someone in your life who you think will benefit from this conversation. Thanks so much for listening. This is your reminder to get out there and keep on exploring.